Welcome to the Bridging Theology Podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian living. Bridging Theology is hosted by Drs. Beth Stovell, Claudia Herrera Montero, Kevin Hill, Ryan Reed, and myself, Candace Smith. Today's episode features a conversation with Dr. Douglas A. Sweeney. He is Dean and Professor of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School. His areas of research include historical theology, history of Christianity, Jonathan Edwards, and American religion and culture. He is the author of numerous books, and he is the co-editor of Jonathan Edwards and Scripture, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Our hosts today are Ryan Reed, who specializes in historical theology and John Calvin, and Kevin Hill, who specializes in patristic theology. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to it, leave a rating in your podcast player, or consider sharing it with others through social media. And now, on to the conversation. Good afternoon, Doug. We're so excited to have you on the podcast today. Let's jump right in. So, Doug, could you tell us something about yourself that most people don't know? Yeah. uh, When I was a boy, I was a caddy, and I caddied for uh, several people who in the late 1970s and early 1980s were very famous professional golfers. Doug, was that because you were like a good golfer yourself, or did that just kind of good... Good fortune, or how did that work out? I was a mediocre golfer. Uh, I caddied at a a very hoity-toity private golf club that was um, people waited years to join so they could play the course, and I got to play it for free. Nice, uh, because I worked there every Monday, so I got a little bit better when I was a caddy, but I was never very good. Okay, do you still golf, or or no? I don't find the time for it much anymore. Uh, I still like it, but uh, when my son was a teenager, we'd play once or twice a summer just to have some good father-son time, but it's been a while since I played. So Doug, we were uh, interested um, to just hear, we're always interested just to hear about kind of what, how God led you to where you are today and, and kind of the discernment process behind that and just even the, I guess the happenstance, God's providence behind that. So how did you, um, what led you to the path to becoming a, you know, a, a, a scholar of American history, academic dean, um, even a husband, you know, a father, it's as much as you want to comment on that, but how has God led you to where you are today? Yeah, he certainly has led me and it's a long story. Um, I'm 56 years old now, so I'll try to keep it short, but I entered college. I went to Wheaton college in Illinois, outside of Chicago. And I entered as an economics major who was headed to law school. And turns out that's not what God had for me. But I didn't know that until I was in a class the spring semester of my sophomore year of college with the man who became my my college mentor and still is something of a mentor for me today, uh, named Mark Knoll, who offered a class on the Reformation, and it was a life-changing class for me, at the end of which the only thing I knew for sure was that I wanted to keep studying these subjects and I wanted to switch from being an economics major to a, being a history major. I had no idea where that was headed. I really simply knew that uh, I loved this stuff and, and God was using it uh, to change my life. And I wanted to keep that going. So I graduated with a history major in December of 1986. Wasn't sure what I was supposed to do next. I went to seminary to try to figure that out. Um, I went on from seminary to a PhD program uh, in Nashville, Tennessee at Vanderbilt University, uh, thinking all the while I I would really like to teach, but there's probably lots of other things I would enjoy doing too. And the job market uh, is tight uh, when it comes to faculty positions. So I remained open-hearted and open-handed about it all and then finished my PhD and wound up uh, getting a job at the Jonathan Edwards Project at Yale University when I was done. And so uh, sort of became a Jonathan Edwards guy then, spending every day of my life transcribing his manuscripts and teaching about him and hosting conferences and 
hosting visiting scholars who wanted to work on Edwards' manuscripts. Uh, after that, uh, went to Chicago and taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for 22 years, at the end of which time I was very comfortably ensconced, had kind of a cushy teaching load and a nice group of PhD students to work with and plenty of sabbatical time for research and writing mm -hmm. and enjoyed it a great deal. Uh, kind of hearkening back to my freshman, sophomore year of college, I was always also an academic who had administrative abilities and hmm. some inclinations. And in the academy, you, you two know, uh, that's, that's not commonplace. Yeah. Most profs <laughs> yeah. run for the hills <laughs> yeah. when the dean or the president of the school uh, asks them to do something administrative. Yeah. And I was just never that way. And so I always wondered, you know, should I do something administrative? Hmm. And to cut to the present, uh, in the late fall of 2018 and the early, the winter and early spring of 2019, God really did work in a very special way in my life, taking me from being very comfortable where I was and uninterested uh, in becoming the dean of Beeson Divinity School at Samford University. Uh, and then within a, about a two-month period of time, moving me from that kind of comfort zone to the conviction that if I was offered the deanship at Beeson, I should take it because that's what God wanted me to do. Hmm. Um, and I was offered the deanship. And at that point, my wife, Wilma, who'd been praying with me about this for several weeks, had never been in the state of Alabama. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we agreed together that it was God's will for us to move to Birmingham and assume the deanship of Beeson before she'd ever seen the state the school was in, let alone the school. Wow. Uh, but we're very happy that we obeyed and we're thrilled to be here now. Wow. That's helpful. And it, it, yeah, it's, a, it's amazing how God, I was surprised because um, I knew you from our time at Trinity. I was surprised that you you left there, but it, it's, it's also exciting to see you providing leadership to a seminary. So it's exciting to see how God has been, been leading you. Without getting into too much detail, I, I'd love to hear Doug what kinds of things did you do? What practices to to get a sense of where God was calling you? You mentioned praying with your wife, for example. Yeah, I, I say frequently now that I'm a dean, when I'm with my faculty members and staff members and and others at the university, uh, I'm I don't know it all. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't think it's a good idea to operate as a know it all. And I've I've long been somebody who's tried to discern um, what God was doing in my life and where God wanted me to go uh, in conversation with other people. So when it comes to issues of um, trying to figure out whether a job offer is one that I should take, uh, I do it with a lot of prayer. My wife, Wilma, is my closest friend and she knows me the best and she's the most deeply invested with me in the things that I do. So she's the most important person I talk with and pray with. But then together, we talk with other people who know us well and care about us, uh, and we, we seek collaboratively uh, to discern God's will. Uh, you know, we regularly read scripture together and pray together. We're active church people. We talk to our pastors about these things for guidance, and we just hope and pray that the combination of those things will enable us to hear uh, the voice of the Lord and um, will give us by grace uh, the faith and the courage uh, to follow God's leading, even when God is leading us to do something entirely new and different from what we've done before. It can be really difficult to make a decision like that, especially when it involves moving one's family and taking a bit of a career change. So thank you for sharing that part of your journey with us. If we could circle back to Jonathan Edwards, I know you've, you've written on many things, but as you said, Jonathan Edwards is one of the areas that you've written extensively on. Could you just tell us a little bit about him for our audience? Tell us a little bit about him as perhaps a pastor and a theologian. Sure. Well, as you just said, Jonathan Edwards was a pastor and a theologian. He was born in 1703, and he passed away in 1758. Uh, he was a part-time academic as a very young man. He worked as what we today would call a professor. Back then, they called him a tutor, or at least in the U.S., we'd call him a professor uh, at Yale College. And at the end of his life, uh, he was the president of what became Princeton University. They called it the College of New Jersey back then. 
uh, and he was very influential in schools for much of his life, but he spent the bulk of his life serving as a pastor, uh, first in Manhattan and then in Connecticut, most famously in Northampton, Massachusetts, where he served from the mid-1720s all the way until his church fired him uh, in 1750. And then from 1750 until the end of 1757, he moved west in Massachusetts to an Indian mission uh, called the Stockbridge Indian Mission and served as a missionary and a pastor and uh, wrote a lot of important theological work uh, in Stockbridge as well. And then again, at the very end of his life, moved to Princeton, New Jersey, uh, where he served as the president of the school and died young at the age of 54. I don't know about you, Ryan, but my my ears perked up when I heard that he was fired from being a pastor, because now I think many churches would eagerly wish they could find somebody like like Jonathan Edwards. Could you tell me why he was fired? It's more complicated than what I'm about to say will suggest. But the straw that broke the camel's back um, in his case in 1749 and 1750 was his decision to change the policy at his church regarding membership. So he inherited a policy from his maternal grandfather, whom he succeeded in the 1720s uh, at the church in Northampton. His grandfather uh, had come to the conclusion as a young pastor in the 1670s that the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist was what he called a converting ordinance. And what he meant by that was it's not an ordinance that should be restricted to people uh, who have already been converted, but it's an ordinance that can also aid in people's conversions. So he opened church membership and access to the sacraments at the congregation to everybody who lived a decent moral life and Back then, uh, people like Stoddard were living and serving in an officially Christian culture. So people also had to uh, profess belief in the truth claims of the Christian faith. Uh, but people did not have to be able to give a, a testimony to a converting work of God, a special saving work of spiritual regeneration in their lives uh, before they could become full and communicant members of the church. And that's the policy Edwards inherited. He worked together with his grandfather from 1726 to 1729. His grandfather passed away in 1729. Edwards became the sole pastor of this church. And for many years, he just kept his grandfather's policy in place. After the revivals of the Great Awakening began to die down in the 1740s, Edwards came to the conclusion that the Lord's Supper ought to be restricted again uh, to people who had uh, been genuinely converted and were exhibiting lives of uh, authentic, vital, personal faith in Jesus. And a lot of the older men in town in particular, who'd kind of come up under his grandfather, became upset that he was trying to do that. And this led to a major controversy at the end of which they fired him. When I hear that, I just think that the more things change, the more they stay the same. I think anybody who's been part of church communities long enough has seen some very good pastors, unfortunately, have to leave for no fault of their own. I'm, I'm, yeah, I think that story is so interesting. I actually, I taught a class, um, Doug, on American religious history. And anyhow, it was interesting to consider kind of the, I'm, I've am i been learning more about uh, New England and some of these different uh, policies. But one thing I've been interested in recently, um, Doug, is, is what was Edwards like, as best as we can get a sense of it, uh, like as a person? Like, you know, I don't know. I think that people are interested to know that. I'm interested to know that, like, is was he i mean there's certainly a character of him as very austere and um kind of i think maybe introverted but i don't know if that's true and i wondered if you could speak to kind of what he was like as a person and um and did that shape his ministry in any way his theology his preaching and how how do you think about that yeah physically he was tall and thin uh and his body was never very robust you know he had a number of um physiological, they were connected to his the stress in his emotional life, but he had several physiological breakdowns over the course of his life, times when he was just down and out for several weeks, sometimes months uh, at a time. He did try to get some exercise. Uh, he liked to chop wood. He liked to ride horseback. He liked to take long walks in the country. So he did get a little bit of exercise, but he was also a very um, bookish 
exceptionally intelligent uh, person and lots of um, bookish, exceptionally intelligent people probably listening to this podcast can identify with this. He he had a profound interior life, mm. which made him feel a little bit unusual, a little bit different from most people. And I think that sense of difference and that um, the isolation sometimes it bred mm. uh, for him contributed to the problems he had with some of his people. Okay. But generally speaking, uh, I think he was also uh, a very wonderful pastor. I don't think pastors need to be uh, extroverted yeah. to serve well. And uh, one of the reasons why Edward's sermons were so rich and Edward's writings were so ingenious uh, is because he had a little bit of introversion in him and enjoyed spending time reading and praying and writing. Um, so, he, yeah, he, he confessed to struggling a little bit with pride as a young man. And that was probably related to his feeling that he was unusual. Sometimes he felt bad about that. Other times he felt proud about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think generally he was a good man, had a wonderful wife, Sarah, with whom he was deeply in love. Hmm. Uh, they had 11 children together, a convivial, busy household. So I don't want to overdo uh, the unusual parts of his personality. Hmm. Uh, he, was a, he was a pretty well-rounded person. He probably just should have worked a little bit harder at his people skills, and uh, he might have lived a little bit longer too if he had gotten a little bit better exercise. I've heard sometimes, I don't know if it's just hagiography, like sometimes I hear about Edward's work ethic. Do we have any sense of like what his work ethic was like even? That's something I've heard about at different points. We do. Um, his friend and first biographer, another pastor who was a disciple of Edward's, lived in his house for a while, studying for pastoral and theological ministry under Edward's care, under Edward's watch. A man named Samuel Hopkins said in the first published biography of Edward's, 1765, mm. that Edward's was somebody who spent an average of 13 hours a day in his study. Okay, wow. Yeah. So there's a work ethic. Yeah, for that's a work ethic, yeah. <laughs> uh, what I like to point out to 21st century students in my classes as soon as I say that, is that Edward's study was also full of people quite often. So it wasn't this sort of Sylvan retreat where there was never any noise and he can always just focus entirely and only on, you know, cultivating his interior life and writing sermons and writing books. There was not an office that he had at a church building where he could meet with people. So he's meeting with parishioners and family members and visitors in that study during those 13 hours, people would come to him with prayer needs and concerns or for counsel. Uh, his children you know, would burst in from time to time and want time with their father. I was just going to ask about that. Yeah, And his house was smaller than mine. You know, he's got 11 children. Yeah. So you have to imagine just with your mind's eye what we're talking about here. We're not talking about some retreat where nobody has access to him. Okay. It's sort yeah. of Grand Central Station. Hmm. And particularly after he became a very well-known pastor and theologian, all kinds of visiting dignitaries would come and stay with them. And so it's a very busy home. But in that very busy home, he had a room designated as his study. And Samuel Hopkins says, on average, he spent 13 hours a day there. It probably explain some of the health difficulties, like you're saying, though, this, uh, maybe you should work, exercise a little more, like you said. So, yeah. So I imagine a significant portion of his time studying was was reading the scriptures and exploring them. Can you tell us a little bit about Edward's approach to the purpose of studying scripture in the Christian life and also about the role of the Holy Spirit in the study of scripture? Yeah, Edward was not very unusual in his understanding of the Bible and the role of the Holy Spirit in uh, helping us to, to learn and understand and apply and preach the Bible. Uh, he thought uh, the Bible was the Word of God. He thought there are uh, lots of ways in which we can develop knowledge of God, but he thought that the the most direct, clear way to come to the most important kinds of knowledge of God uh, is by reading the Bible. Uh, he had a very high view of the inspiration of the Bible. Uh, he pretty much thought it was divine speech and writing, and he didn't use the word dictation, but compared to even a lot of the ways more conservative Protestant theologians today mm. would talk about the doctrine of Scripture, he sounds like he's got an exceptionally high view. In other words, he'll say sometimes that the Holy Spirit indicted, which almost means sort of just 
spoke through the, the people holding the pens, uh, the words that they were to write down uh, in what became the canonical books of the scriptures. And because the scripture comes from God and the prophets and apostles who wrote the biblical materials uh, were functioning as oracles of God, uh, he thought the Bible had inherent power to save and sanctify and equip people for living lives of discipleship and uh, witness to God and the gospel. And he thought the most important help one could get in understanding and interpreting and teaching other people about the Bible was from God's own spirit. The same spirit who inspired the people who wrote the text was the spirit we should depend on for understanding the text well. Uh, And of course, the Bible itself says things like that. Edwards uh, appealed frequently to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in which the Apostle Paul is talking about the difference that the Holy Spirit makes for the ways in which we understand God and God's speech to us. Um, Again, though, uh, by the standards of Reformed Protestantism in the 18th century West, Edwards was, you know, pretty typical in mm-hmm. these respects. Whereas today, even very conservative people would place a very strong emphasis on the humanity and the history behind and sort of circumstances of the humans mm-hmm. uh, who wrote the, the biblical materials for um, information that should be brought to bear in the interpretation of the Bible. And of course, also, Uh, refer to the divine authorship of Scripture and talk about the importance of the Holy Spirit. I think if you set Edwards up against a typical conservative Protestant today, Edwards would be somebody who would spend comparatively less time on the human dimension of Scripture and comparatively more time on the divine dimension of Scripture. So, I I was reading part of your your book, Edwards' Exegete, and really enjoyed it. I assume he came at scripture with familiarity and probably a confession towards things like the creeds, the Nicene Creed, um, the Apostles' Creed, perhaps the Athanasian Creed. Is that is that correct? Did he have a sort of what we might call a Nicene faith? He did. He had a Nicene Trinitarian faith, but he didn't talk a lot about the creeds. Hmm. He talked a lot about confessions. He raised his family up on the Westminster Confession. He used it as a a frame of reference for interpreting Scripture. And the confessions, of course, the early Protestant confessions, uh, oftentimes appeal to the ancient creeds. So he was not anti-creedal, to be sure, but he's a congregationalist in a period of time where the, the biblical interpretation and the Christian practice and the preaching practices and so on were shaped most profoundly by some of the early modern Protestant confessional materials. And so you get his you get his creedalism kind of through his confessionalism, and then also through some of the the more scholastic theologians uh, that he read and and commended to other people to read. Which sorts of theologians, like Thomas Aquinas, or well, he did read Catholic authors, uh, but his favorite scholastic theologians, and we know this because he told people about it. His favorite polemical scholastic theologian was Francis Turretin, a Genevan Calvinist uh, who wrote in Institutes that was very important to Edwards. And then his favorite theologian of all, his favorite work other than the Bible, as he famously told one of his students and friends, uh, was uh, the massive systematic theological work of Peter von Maastricht, who was a Dutch Reformed uh, pastor and academic theologian as well, uh, who wrote a, a Latin multi-volume tome uh, referred to as the uh, theoretical practica theologia, or uh, it's a theology that's both theoretical and practical simultaneously. And Maastricht was a member of a group of people that sometimes referred to as the uh, Nadere Reformatie movement, the nearer or further reformation movement in the Netherlands, which is a lot like English Puritanism, but in a different context and different set of resources, so on. And so Edwards had a great affinity to him and followed von Maastricht in a number of ways. This is the question I really wanted to ask you, uh, Doug. Um, I, it's it's a it relates to my research and um, I think just human concerns. So some of the most important, one of the most important questions of what is the purpose of life and how does that connect to happiness? And, and so I wondered how Edwards would kind of approach those questions. And I know there was 
some, if, as my, if my understanding is correct, some pretty significant debates in the 18th century around this question of self-denial, happiness, eudaimonism is a, you know, big word for that. Um, so how did Edwards think about happiness and, um, and the purpose of life? Like, you know, that, that all important question. Well, as a Westminsterian reformed pastor, uh, he might well have said, well, the purpose of life is to uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever, uh, to, to quote some of the language of the Westminster Standards. Uh, and the enjoyment of God, uh, of course, then was also very important to him. And he, he did reflect on what it meant to enjoy God hmm. uh, pretty extensively. Uh, but as you know, there was controversy uh, in his own 18th century context about the eudaimonistic tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word eudaimonism comes from a Greek word, eudaimonia, which is often translated happiness, but can also be translated uh, well-being or human flourishing. And in the eudaimonistic tradition, which dates all the way back to the ancient Greeks, you don't have to be a Christian to be a eudaimonist. Yeah. In fact, uh, the most famous eudaimonist of all was Aristotle. Mm-hmm. But Aristotle's eudaimonism was Christianized in the ancient church and uh, kind of Protestantized uh, in the early modern world of Jonathan Edwards. Mm. And for you, diamondists, um, self-love was distinguished from abject selfishness. And the teaching was when God regenerates someone, reorients someone's soul, uh, reorders someone's loves, transforms someone's affections, God does not wipe out or eradicate that person's desires and passions, that person's self-love, rather God transforms Mm -hmm. that person's self-love and reorients that person's self-love in relation to the love of God. So a eudaimonist like Edwards will teach that self-love and the love of God are meant to go together. Hmm. Of course, the love of God is the the love that has the priority and orders the rest. Hmm. Uh, But Edwards taught that we should love God passionately, in a way that's motivated, in a way that's fueled by desire. Hmm. Uh, It's just that most people don't desire the right things, and so they need their affections to be transformed so that they will desire and live passionately for the glory of God, which is what Edwards taught that we were created for. There were people in his day, including some of his own friends and students, uh, who on the basis of Edwards' doctrine of disinterested benevolence, Edwards defined true virtue very famously in a book about true virtue as uh, disinterested benevolence or benevolence to being in general. And some of his students thought, well, if we're really going to be disinterested in our love for God and neighbor, Hmm. we're not going to talk so much about personal fulfillment and self-love and happiness and these kinds of things. We probably ought to talk more in the terms of Jesus from the Gospels about denying ourselves, taking up our cross, you know, daily and following Jesus without a lot of thought or reference to whether that's going to make us happy day by day or make us feel personally fulfilled day by day. But Edwards was somebody who thought you could have it both ways. Hmm. And so long as your eudaimonism for Edwards involved denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus by walking the way of the cross or walking a cross-shaped or cruciform life, Mm -hmm. Edward says, ironically, paradoxically, that way leads to ultimate happiness. Mm -hmm. That is the way to live on this side of sin, the fall of the race into sin, in a way that really does bring fulfillment. That's how how you get to God and the enjoyment of God. Edwards taught. Wow. And so for him, he would even say like, you like seek your well-being like in loving God. Like you could, I don't know if he, obviously that's just how I would say it, but like this kind of idea of like, absolutely, we should pursue our, our personal well-being and like, we should do that by taking our cross and following Christ, you know? So there's a sacrificial element, but there, there's no, that pursuit of happiness is kind of, um, honored, I guess, and elevated. Uh, would, would you agree with that in, in his thought? Or, or it's, it's given a place, I guess, maybe. Yeah, given a place. The qualification I'd want to make to the way you just said it is that Edwards thought if you really have been regenerated by the Spirit of God and reoriented in your affectional life, you're not going to be thinking a lot anymore about making yourself happy. Hmm. 
but your happiness, your well-being, your eudaimonia will come as a function of your cross-shaped life, your converted life, okay. you know, your passionate pursuit of, of God. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, that's helpful. S- continued on the subject of, of happiness and, and human flourishing, um, but trying to ground it into day-to-day life. Edwards, he lived in a completely different time than us, but he, he did own several slaves. I'm wondering, like, how do you think this impacts the way that we should think about him? Well, uh, I don't think I'm exceptional anymore in saying that it means we should see him as a big sinner, you know, who didn't live the way he ought to live in this respect. Uh, I I have no interest at all uh, in defending Edward's enslavement of other people, uh, even as a historian. I think he should have known better uh, than to do what he was doing in the 18th century. Hmm. Uh, I will point out that by the standards of his day, Edwards did things for enslaved people that were pretty good, that other people weren't doing. He was the first pastor in his town to uh, include them as full members of the church. Um, he, he was uh, interested in making sure that any enslaved people in his world uh, were treated uh, in a Christian ma- manner you know, by the people who owned them. Uh, so it's not as bad as it could be. And uh, we actually don't know a lot about Edward's view of slavery. We have one now famous draft of a letter. We don't even have the final version of the letter. And the draft is very sketchy. And it was written to a nearby congregation that was upset with its pastor uh, in a general sort of way and was using his view of slavery as a way to criticize him. And in that draft, it, it appears that Edwards is saying that what he called man-stealing was evil and was a sin and should not be engaged in by any Christian. But at the same time, it seemed like he was saying that the institution of slavery is not categorically necessarily sinful. You know, the way he read the Bible, uh, he didn't see slavery being denounced explicitly and Christians or followers of Jesus being told, if you uh, have slaves, you need to release them immediately and necessarily. So that was kind of his perspective. There were some things that even someone like Edwards saw were just obviously evil that were part of the transatlantic slave trade and that he opposed, uh, but he didn't, sadly, uh, oppose the slave system altogether. Yeah, and so I think we should just admit that and say that's really awful, and uh, we shouldn't try to excuse it. I think maybe if I could add one more thing, it would be um, most people that we learn from in the Bible and in the history of Christianity were big sinners. Yeah. And um, if you can't learn from big sinners, you're probably not going to learn a whole lot from anybody. I mean, except Jesus. And of course, Jesus is the most important person, I think, from whom to learn, but he's not the only one Hmm. from whom to learn. And one of the things that uh, my life as a church history teacher and Bible teacher uh, has taught me is that God, as the Bible itself says, God likes to show forth his strength through human weakness. God likes to show forth his glory uh, through the cross. Uh, God can, as more modern simplifiers of this notion have said, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And I think this can be an encouragement to people like me. I don't know about you, but I'm fully aware of my own sinfulness and ignorance and limitations, finitude. And I sure am glad that God can use uh, puny, bad people like me uh, to do good things. And I think, I think that's the takeaway that I'm hoping students and even listeners of this podcast will consider. I think we're raising up kind of a generation of people now um, who haven't learned history in a very th- sort of thoughtful, wise way. they too many people in our own day assume that history is, you know, has good guys and bad guys, and they're mostly bad guys, and there aren't many of the people from the past that we can learn from today. And I think that just impoverishes our education, hmm. impoverishes our learning. So if there's a way of sort of calling evil evil, calling sin sin, without concluding that therefore we have nothing to learn from anybody else, and just always taking the moral high ground and getting snooty about the past and being condescending towards the kinds of sinners who came before us, uh, I think maybe we could learn some things and, and even be a little bit more self-aware about our own sinfulness in the present and try to correct some of the things we're doing wrong. 
So that sound means it's time for our intermission questions. I'll start things off. Doug, imagine if you've won an all-inclusive trip to anywhere in the world. Where would you go? I would want to take my son and daughter-in-law to Lauterbrunn in Switzerland. It's a beautiful place. Uh, we love it. My wife, Wilma, and I have been there a number of times. Um, it's gorgeous. I mean, the God's beauty is on display there in a nearly unparalleled way. Um, and my son was there uh, with us when he was a little boy, but uh, my daughter-in-law has never been there. So I'd like to take them to Lauterbrunnen. Wow, that sounds great. Um, if So it's a classic question, uh, Doug, but if you had to have coffee or tea or whatever you're drinking with a historical figure, um, who, who who would that historical figure be? Well, you're talking to a church historian, so there are lots of them I'd like to have coffee or a beer with. Um, but I, if I had to pick just one, it would be Martin Luther. Okay, I'm, I'm a Lutheran. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very much drawn to Luther's um, kind of theology, his way of being a pastor. He too is somebody who did some pretty horrible things. Mm-hmm. So I certainly don't want to defend all the the evil in his life. Yeah. Um, but he's he's benefited me tremendously, and he was just a fascinating person. Cool. Yeah, I think that would be a fun fun coffee or beer. Probably some very good German beer, I would guess. Mm-hmm. So speaking of food, Doug, if you're going to have one meal of your choice for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, I don't like that question. I, I don't want to have just one <laughs> meal the rest of my life. And I guess if I had to pick one, it'd be veggie intensive. You know, then there's more, more, more friends of mine that would share the meal with me. I'd probably be healthier. I could last longer. So like a salad is what you're saying, huh, Doc? Or oh, I don't know. Can I have? Uh, can I mix up the vegetables on a plate? <laughs> <laughs> a veggie platter, I guess, would be. Yeah, your, that'd be good. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, you're, you're trying to live the opposite of Jonathan Edwards and uh, have a little more health in your life. So, um, is there a book that you wish you had written? Like, um, it just it's just such an amazing book. You thought you you feel like oh, I really wish I had you know had the idea to do that or in this book. Uh, that's another tough one because I um, I read and write and teach about books for a living, so yeah. I like lots of them. Um, one of my favorite prose stylists is John Updike, famous okay. American novelist, yeah. and um, in the beauty of, in the beauty of the lilies is probably my favorite Updike novel. Hmm. Um, I, I, th- I think we all ought to be more avid novel readers, by yeah. the way. So I'll put a plug in for that. And I think even for historians, uh, reading novels really does help us to imagine sympathetically the lives of people who are different from us. I think novelists describe others in a way that uh, historians can learn a lot from. Yeah. But yeah, if you're going to make me pick one, I'd say I'd like to write more like John Updike. But I'd like to write about history and theology. Yeah, in the beauty of the lilies, though, that's the one you choose. That's I haven't read it. It sounds great. So, if you could wake up tomorrow and suddenly, maybe through the matrix, you plugged in, and now you're an expert in one additional theological subdiscipline, what would you choose, and why? I would choose Hebrew because it's hard, and if I get to learn it without without hard work, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, and I'm weak. My Hebrew is not that great. Hmm. Um, so yeah, please, please give me the Hebrew pill and I'll just, uh, ingest it. I'm interested, um, in the way that our understanding of our own history shapes us. And, um, and I think that maybe this is an apologetic point for you, but I, even I remember when I went to seminary, there's just such a high view of scriptural study and, you know, in, in, in all Christian circles, I think, especially in Protestants, but the importance of tradition and church history, sometimes, um, I don't know if it's always emphasized as much, but how would you talk about the history of the church, the study of the church history as formational for Christians and how it helps us grow in our love of God? So how would you talk about those things? Well, in a lot of different ways, I certainly don't want uh, history to displace the study of Scripture. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a Lutheran Protestant who thinks that the main event in theological study is the uh, exegesis and application of the Bible. Uh, but I like uh, theologians and preachers and teachers who unpack the Bible and interpret it, apply it theologically, doctrinally, 
And I think if you're going to do that well, you need to know the Christian faith as it's been transmitted through the centuries of the history of Christianity. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to know how it is that others in the body of Christ, uh, past and present, both at home and around the world, uh, interpret and apply and try to live out the teachings of Scripture. I think you really don't know what it means to be orthodox without church history. Uh, I most, frankly, most of my favorite uh, biblical interpreters uh, are older figures who are less afraid than exegetes are today uh, to kind of go for it theologically. Yeah, uh, because they did so uh, within um, guiding rails hmm. provided by uh, biblical theology and the Christian tradition. Yeah, uh, and that gave them a little freedom to make some mistakes or do things they weren't entirely sure about uh, for the sake of edifying other people. And you just, you can't do any of those things if you don't know church history. Hmm. Uh, I became a scholar and a seminary professor because of church history, because God was using church history to turn some light bulbs on for me that had never been turned on before. I grew up in a church context and it was a good church context. It was a it was an evangelical congregation that taught the Bible well and promoted faithful Christian living and world Christianity and missions and all kinds of good things. But it wasn't a context where I learned a lot about uh, the history of the practice of Christianity, the history of the interpretation of the Bible, the history of worship, the history of pastoral ministry, the history of Christian thought, Christian cultural engagement. Christian worldview thinking. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are the things that church history helped me to learn about. And those are really important ways of kind of fleshing out a really full, full-orbed incarnational Christian life and Christian witness, and even Christian preaching and, and Bible teaching ministry. No, oh, that's helpful. Yeah, I think I, I have a similar background. So, I, and I've, I'm a historian and church historian myself. So I, I mean, I'm very sympathetic to what you're saying, but I do think that you've said that very well. And yeah, thanks for, um, yeah, just talking about the importance of history. As a Christian scholar who studied the history of exegesis, what advice, if any, would you give to today's pastors and preachers as they try to preach and teach faithfully? Oh, I think the, the number one piece of advice I'd give them is, is a piece of advice that was implied in my answer to the last question. Uh, my piece of advice would be, don't think of yourself primarily as a historian. And I say that as a historian. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I love historians. It's not just that some of my best friends are historians. Uh, I myself <laughs> am a historian. But I agree with Luther and Edwards and all kinds of other people in the history of Christianity that the Bible is God's word, and the Bible is given to us in canonical form, and the Bible has a storyline. And the Bible has teachings and themes that run through the whole canon. Uh, and if we're going to be faithful in helping people understand the Bible, we need to help them see these things. Uh, so our sermons and Bible lessons should not be just kind of history lessons with a moral to the story tacked on to the end. Uh, they should be occasions in which we open up from a particular passage of Scripture the Word of God and interpret particular passages of Scripture in relation to uh, the main themes that they exhibit uh, and the ways in which they're connected to the rest of the history of redemption narrated in Scripture. And I think if we do it in those ways, our people will come to know God better rather than just know how particular sentences of an ancient text would have been understood by their original hearers, hmm. which is also an important thing to help people understand. It's just not the main thing that I think God wants us to help them understand. And I'd, I'd like it if uh, preachers and Bible teachers today uh, help people understand how the, the sinews of Scripture, the themes of Scripture, the storyline of Scripture, the doctrines of Scripture are themselves practical. So when we get to application in sermons, it shouldn't just be the little moral to the story tacked onto the history lesson, but it should be why it is that these weighty things of God that he has condescended to reveal to us matter for the mm. way we live our daily lives. Awesome. Completely agree. Yeah, Thanks. I, 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 um, I kind of, I think it's going off this, Doug, but 
because um, I'm interested in I, when when I first met you at, at Trinity, something you were thinking a lot about at that time was theological education. And I imagine that's still the case today now that you're an academic dean. And so I'd be interested as you're training pastors who are preaching and, and will be leaders in the church and the world, how do you think about uh, theological education? I guess specifically in North America, but are there things that excite you about it? Are there concerns that you have? And then I guess the big question here is like, is there hopes that you have for um, pastors and, and, and theological education as pastors are trained to lead the church um, in the world? Yeah, I have a lot of hope. Um, I believe that Jesus was right <laughs> in yeah. Matthew 16 uh, when he told Peter and the apostles that uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Uh, I believe that students like ours here at Beeson Divinity School uh, offer all kinds of reasons to hope about the future of pastoral ministry and the health of the church. They're, they're just wonderful. Um, my biggest concern it would be that fewer and fewer people anymore care uh, whether their pastors know what they're talking about. Hmm. Frankly, I mean, I don't want to overstate the case or be mean, um, but there are lots of churches today who just want somebody who's good on stage and relatable, yeah. and they don't want somebody who's going to stretch them too much uh, anyway or sound too smart. And I think uh, these desires are unhealthy, hmm. and they don't bode very well for the future of our churches. And uh, as a seminary dean, I have a related concern about theological education in the context of the seminary, and that is that most seminaries today are competing with one another to make seminary as cheap and easy and non-formational and low-contact <laughs> yeah. and impersonal okay. as huh. possible because they're so desperate for bodies and money, and yeah. they're so worried about the future of seminary enrollments. And I think that's horrible. Um, hmm. So I get the most excited about movements today in the life of the church, like uh, the the pastor theologian movement. Mm -hmm. You know, that's uh, I've been involved in the the Center for Pastor Theologians, which is based in Chicago, but it's become a, an international ministry now, a network of pastors who aren't uh, being elitist about it, but they're simply convinced that God wants pastors to lead God's people biblically and theologically. He wants to challenge them uh, to make progress in their discipleship. Mm -hmm. And of course, as we know, to be a disciple is to be a student. It involves learning things yeah. and making progress in the knowledge of God uh, for the sake of the love of God and the love of our neighbors. It's hard to love someone you don't know. Uh, and frankly, I think a lot of our evangelical churches in particular today are full of big talk about loving God, but they're full of people talking big about loving God who don't really want to put the work in that's required to know the one they claim to love so much. Hmm. So I think these are big problems. Yeah. Um, and the reason I've committed myself uh, to a life in service of the church and in service of schools that raise up pastors is to try to uh, address these challenges. Yeah. No, there's I, I like, there's concerns and there's hope though, like you said. So yeah, I think it's both those things can be true. Um, so I think we just have two questions left here. One is, um, you know, some of our reader, our listeners um, are, you know, w probably wanting to get more into American religious history, or is, is there any, uh, a couple books that you would recommend that you think would be just a good starting place for um, people learning, wanting to learn more about Edwards or just other um, American religious history, North American religious history uh, as a whole? Yes, there are many. Um, <laughs> yeah. I guess if I'm going to recommend just one book about Edwards, uh, I'd recommend George Marsden's biography of Jonathan Edwards, which was published by Yale University Press in 2003. Okay, um, it's it's long, uh, but it's a it's a good long read. It's long because it's thorough. Hmm. And I haven't used this book as a text yet. It's hot off the press. But a couple of my buddies at Vanderbilt, Jimmy Bird and James Hudnut Boimler, have just published a new textbook history of American religion. And I like both of those guys a lot. And that book is called The Story of Religion in America, an okay. introduction. It's well-written. It's clear. It's up to date. It's pretty comprehensive. It's 
kind of very ecumenical. It's trying not to play favorites with any particular group, but just give you a good feel of the whole history uh, of American religion. Well, that's, yeah, that's great. So the very last question we have is actually a question of, did we miss anything? If there's one question that you wish we'd asked you, what would it be? <laughs> yep, you guys were perfect. I didn't miss anything. Uh, maybe maybe if there's one I wish you would have asked me, it's, um, Doug, how can I start a student scholarship at Beeson Divinity School? <laughs> I spend a lot of my time these days. Yeah. You know, at Beeson, it's a big ask. We ask people actually to come and live with us and become part of our formational community for three or four years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not a big requirement at most seminaries anymore. You can do almost everything from a distance and online and so yeah. on. And uh, But if you're going to make that big ask of people in 2021, you got to help them pay to get through yeah, uh, you got to help them yeah. avoid going into debt and so on. So I'm I'm on the road shaking my tin can, asking people who love the church and want good pastors to pay for it. Yeah, I, I can personally say that the biggest transformations in, in my life, spiritually and theologically, came from being with other Christians and Christian scholars, Christian community, not online. As, as great as Zoom and everything else is, it, it was it was in person. There's something about that is almost irreplaceable. Doug, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Uh, I've learned a lot, learned areas I need to bone up on. Uh, I think that our audience will also have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I, I really appreciate your openness about discernment and connecting some of the, the more intellectual subjects to matters of the heart. So thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Happy to be with you. Yeah, yeah. thanks so much, Doug. It's, yeah, really a pleasure. So. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website at bridgentheology.com. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe to it in your podcast player, rate it, or share it with others. This episode was produced by Kevin Hill.